Well, if you're taking notes, uh, you can throw up at the title, The Source and the Surface. This message is called The Source and the Surface. And I need a little bit of crowd participation from you if that's okay. If you can call out, what is the best gift you've ever gotten? And I'm really going for like childhood gifts. So don't give me like my new Tesla. Like that's just going to make me feel bad. Like what, what is the best gift you've ever gotten? Okay, bike, all right. Give me something else. What was that? Oh, power wheels. Okay, so I was thinking about this a couple weeks ago, and something like popped into my head. I barely even remembered getting this toy, but it was great. And the reason why it kind of like flew to the top of my list is I was like, if I had this toy right now, I would play with it. Like, like I would go home after this message, and I would play with this toy. And you're going to think it's a little ridiculous when I tell you what it is. Um, It was the lightsaber trainer that Luke Skywalker used in A New Hope. That's a deep cut right there. Like some of you don't even know what I'm talking about. It's up on the screen. Okay, so there's Luke using the force to defend against this floating orb that's shooting at him. And so I was given this toy. You would put it on a table and it would shoot Nerf discs at you and you would use your trusty lightsaber that every kid had. Come on. And, and I would block it. And inevitably I would close my eyes, try to use the force. It didn't work. And um, like that was my favorite toy growing up. And I'll go home and I'll play with it right now. I'm being real with you. Um, and there's this funny thing that we do as kids, and it's cute and it's funny, uh, that like a kid gets a toy or, or a thing, a gift stuck in their head, and it's like life cannot go on. Uh, there is no true happiness. There is no true existence outside of owning this toy. You've all seen a kid in a supermarket where it's like life does not exist outside of aisle 12 unless I get this candy bar. And it's like, oh, okay, I get it. Like I've, we've all been there. But our problem is that we never actually outgrow this. Like, we never actually outgrow it. We just change the object of our affections, right? So growing up, for me, it was like toys, and then it was video games, and then I got really into guitar, and I just wanted guitar stuff, and then eventually I got older, and I started thinking that relationships were going to fill some sort of satisfaction hole or maybe some sort of quality of life that I was dreaming about. And the truth is, is we, we tend to do this at a much deeper level than we would ever care to admit. See, it, it, it's a human issue to to have idols in our life. And when I say idols, I don't want your mind to go to some uh, tribe in the rainforest with a golden statue of a lion with the head of a dragon and the wings of an eagle and the tail of an ox and the essence of a butterfly. Like that's not what we're talking about. See, an idol is anything that steals your affection, steals your worship from God. So anything can, can be an idol. And, and in fact, we like to laugh at uh, that, that tribe that worships some statue. But the truth is, ours are just as foolish, just as crude, just as ridiculous. Anything that you start to value higher than you value God is an idol in your life. I, I often like to say that if there were a metaphorical throne for our hearts, Jesus should be sitting on that throne, but we tend to take him off of the throne and put our idols on them. And so um, John Calvin, who is one of the Protestant reformers, would coin the phrase that our hearts are idol factories, that this is a, a human issue. You can't tune out on this message. You can't say, no, this one isn't for me. I don't have this problem. Our hearts are idol factories. And the thing that's so insidious about idolatry is often you don't even know that it's happening until it's too late. Like you might be sitting here and legitimately thinking, I don't have idols in my life. This is not something I struggle with. And I hope and I think that by the end of this message, God will reveal to you, man, there, there are things in my heart that I don't really like. And, and man, yeah, I, I've been struggling with this idol and that idol. And so this is an important issue. 
And two things happen when we value something higher than we value God, when we create an idol in our hearts. And these two things are what make this such an important issue. The first thing that we do is we suppress the truth of God. We suppress the truth of God. And the second thing we do is we question the character of God. And so, so let me give you an example, because in our context, in our culture, idols tend to be good things that we make ultimate things. They tend to be good things that we turn into God things. And so an example would be like, if I have a romantic relationship that I start to value higher than I value God, then anything God says about my relationship must either fall in line with what I say, how I feel, how I think, or I must suppress it because it's coming against my idol. So if I'm idolizing a relationship, And in Ephesians 5, it lays out how a man and a woman in the context of marriage love one another, and that comes against my idol, then I must suppress that truth. And then the only logical thing for me to do is question God's character. So I suppress the truth, and then I turn and say, how could God say that? He can't truly be a good God. He can't be a loving God if he comes against my idols. And so this is a big issue. We end up enslaving ourselves, devoting ourselves to something that never deserved our worship, never deserved our affection, And this puts our whole lives on the line. Like if you are looking to something for hope, for joy, for satisfaction, and it cannot give you what it is you are looking for, and you are enslaving yourself to something that does not deserve your devotion, you are at risk of wasting your entire life. Wasting your entire life. And if you're listening online or you're in the room and you're not a follower of Jesus, you would not call yourself a Christian. I'm glad you're here because realistically, you have idols too. And the truth is, you might be saying, no, I don't. Like, I don't even believe in God. I'm an atheist. I don't worship anything. And the truth is, atheists worship the human intellect. It's because we have a tendency inside of us to worship whatever we can get our hands on, our hearts, our idol factories. And so what I want to do today, and what I hope that you'll see, is not that you'll get down on yourself, not that you'll think you're such a bad person, but that you'll see that you are looking for hope, you're looking for satisfaction, you're looking for joy, and you can find those things in Jesus. And that's where I hope you're going to be found today. And so I want to do something a little different. Uh, If you've heard me preach before, you know I like to kind of take a passage and go kind of verse by verse. Pat was pretty accurate when he said that. But today I want to do actually something a little different. And I want to work through a really practical framework. Like I want to get like real practical 2021, how do we deal with our idolatry? And so we're going to be working through a framework together. And what I want to do is I want to use a passage in Deuteronomy 5 as a launching point for us. So we're going to read it in its entirety, and we're going to use it as a way to launch us into our content for today. So you can read this along with me if you'd like. It's Deuteronomy 5, starting in verse 6. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. Do not have any other gods before me. Do not make an idol for yourself in the shape of anything in the heavens or above or on the earth below or in the waters under the earth. Do not bow and worship to them. Do not serve them because I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, bringing the consequences of the father's iniquities on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing faithful love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments." Do not misuse the name of the Lord your God, because the Lord will not leave anyone unpunished who misuses his name. Be careful to remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy, as the Lord your God has commanded you. You are to labor six days and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath day to the Lord your God. Do not do any work, you, your son or daughter, 
your male or female slave, your ox or donkey, or any of your livestock, or the resident alien who lives within your city gates, so that your male and female slaves may rest as you do. Remember that you were slaves in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out of there with a strong hand and an outstretched arm. That is why the Lord your God has commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Honor your father and mother as the Lord your God has commanded you, so that you may live long and that you may prosper in the land the Lord your God is giving you. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give dishonest testimony against your neighbor, do not cover, covet your neighbor's wife or desire your neighbor's house, his field, his male or female slave, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. And these are the Ten Commandments. Like chances are if you grew up in church or even if you didn't, you've heard of the Ten Commandments before. And you might be wondering, like, what does this all have to do with our topic today? What does this all have to do with idolatry? So the Ten Commandments were given to Israel after they had left the land of Egypt and God was bringing them towards the promised land. And, and you might have said, okay, like, Commandments 1 and 2 kind of sound like they're about idolatry, but what, what about the rest? And see, Martin Luther, who was another Protestant reformer, you know, guy, 95 theses on the Catholic church door, couldn't come up with five more to make it even 100. I'm just saying, I don't know why you, just come up with five more, dude. But, but Martin Luther would teach, and this is the argument that I'm making today, is that uh, because the first two commandments deal with idolatry, you can only break the last eight if you've already broken one and two. That because the first two deal with idolatry, you will only break three through ten if you've already valued something higher than you value God. So let me give you an example, the example of adultery. The problem, if one commits adultery, is not that you've done a physical act against your marriage. The problem is really that you began to value something like sex or pleasure or a relationship higher than you valued God. You allowed it to creep in and whisper lies into your life. You, you let it convince you that it would be a good idea, and then you went and you committed adultery. It was just that on the surface, it's not the root problem. Covetousness, the problem is not just that you want something that your neighbor has. The problem is that you've let an idol of materialism or comfort creep in to the point where it bubbles up to the surface of you wanting and almost taking what your neighbor has. See, uh, he's going to argue, and we're going to argue today, that the root of our sinfulness is our idolatry. That the root of our sinfulness is that we are valuing things higher than we value God. And you might already be seeing that these are surface indicators, right? Like, so we're seeing surface indicators of a deeper issue. And this is where I want to spend the bulk of our time today. I want to give you a disclaimer uh, as we work through some of this content uh, and just by ways of citing my sources, a lot of this is really, really practical stuff that was developed and popularized by Tim Keller's book, Counterfeit God. So if you're looking for a resource for this that's going to detail this in, in a greater length than I'm able to, Counterfeit God's by Tim Keller. And that's where we're getting a lot of our content from. I've heard it preached uh, and taught by many pastors today just by way of citing our sources. And so we're going to talk about two different kinds of idols, surface idols and source idols. So starting with surface idols, as you could imagine, these exist on the surface of our lives. They're somewhat easy to identify. If you and I stepped out into the hallway or went out to lunch after church, I could ask you some pretty simple discovery questions and figure out what some of the surface idols in your life are. I could ask you, hey, what are you struggling with? Uh, how can I be praying that God changes your life? What are you hoping that God will be doing in these next few months in your life? And your answers are going to reveal some things that you're struggling with, reveal some surface idols. And so I want to talk about these 
And by no means am I going to be able to give you an extensive list because these could come up in our lives in a thousand different ways. Um, but what I want to do is use some really practical, really um, purposeful language to describe these idols that hopefully you'll be able to grab onto one and say, I kind of identify with that or that is making me think this. And what idols do is they whisper a lie into your life. And, and this is where we're going to use this sentence a lot. You're going to hear me say it a lot. They often whisper, life only has meaning and I only have worth if blank. And so I don't want to just rattle off a list to you because if I just rattled off, uh, maybe some service idols are like money, power, uh, lust, like that's not going to help you. I want to use this language to talk about our idols. And so I'm going to give you a, a pretty short list of some service idols. Image idolatry. Life only has meaning and I only have worth if I have a particular kind of look or body image, work idolatry, life only has meaning and I only have worth if I'm highly productive in getting stuff done, achievement idolatry, life only has meaning and I only have worth if I'm recognized for my accomplishments, materialism idolatry, life only has meaning and I only have worth if I uh, have possessions and money. Religion idolatry. Life only has meaning and I only have worth if I'm adhering to my religion's moral codes and participating in its programs. Individual person idolatry. Life only has meaning and I only have worth if this one person in my life is happy or happy with me. Racial and cultural idolatry. Life only has meaning and I only have worth if my race or culture is recognized as superior. Inner ring idolatry. Life only has meaning and I only have worth if some group lets me in. Family idolatry, life only has meaning and I only have worth if my family is happy or happy with me. Relationship idolatry, life only has meaning and I only have worth if this man or this woman loves me. And lastly, suffering idolatry, life only has meaning and I only have worth if I'm hurting and in a problem because only then do I feel noble or worthy of love and only then am I able to deal with my guilt. And the thing is, is that no one is saying these things out loud. No one's even thinking them. Like, you don't get up for work in the morning and say, man, life only has meaning and I only have worth if I'm able to get this stuff done, if I can get those reports in. Like, no one is saying that. You don't look at your bank account and say, life only has meaning and I only have worth. If I'm able to hit this number, go on that vacation, buy this car. But you might not be saying it, but the truth is the way that you live you, your life is telling us that you believe it. Like some of us have spent money that we don't even have, gone into debt to buy things that we don't need because we believe that life only has meaning and we only have worth if I have this or that thing. And the problem with surface idols is that they just exist on the surface. They are not the real issue. See, anyone, if you've dealt with a garden or um, a lawn doing lawn care, you kind of know where I'm going with this. Uh, I'm like the full-time landscaper at my house, and, and I like it. It's fun. I like being outside and doing yard work. And the thing about lawn care is if you see weeds in the garden beds or even throughout the lawn, you're going to be tempted to grab a weed whacker and just trim those weeds down to the point where you can't even see them. But three days later, you go back outside, and what happens? They're right back. There's more of them somehow. Because there's a root that never got dealt with. There is a, a deeper issue that never got taken care of. And so when we deal with only our surface idols, we will just see new surface idols pop up in their place. If you're like, man, I got a materialism idol, so let me deal with that. Let me, let me figure that out. And then all of a sudden, you're seeing like a laziness kind of uh, 
wanted to stay in bed all day, kind of idle, pop up in your life, and you're like, I never even thought I would deal with that. Like, what's, what's the deal with that? It's because there is a source idol underneath it. And so I want to talk a bit about the four source idols identified in this framework. And by no means am I saying, look, these are the only four source idols, and you have to believe this, and this is the only truth. I'm just working through a framework here, and we're going to identify four source idols together. And some of us are going to see one. You're going to be able to latch onto it real quick. Or some of you might see two or three, and some of you might be like, that's it. Run me through the whole thing. I got all four. And, and you know what? That's not a shame thing. That's not a make you feel bad about yourself thing. This is a recognize my idols so that I know how to uproot them kind of thing. All right? So that's where we're going. So the first source idol is comfort idolatry. And the comfort worshiper says, life only has meaning and I only have worth if I have this kind of pleasure, experience, or quality of life. So the comfort worshiper wants comfort. They want lack of stress. They want privacy. And they're willing to pay the price or sacrifice their productivity. Right, so in your quest for comfort and lack of stress, you will give up the idea of ever being productive, ever doing something uh, worthwhile. Your biggest nightmare then is stress or demands. Like the idea of meeting a deadline is like a nightmare for the comfort worshiper. And because of this, the comfort worshiper almost always ends up lazy and slothful. And this always hurts the people in your life. Right, Because you can't ever just contain your laziness. Your laziness will end up bleeding into a lack of care and a lack of concern for the people around you. The comfort worshiper ends up enslaved to boredom. Because you're trying to rid yourself of all stress, rid yourself of all work to the point where you will just be bored in your life. And probably the most sad thing about the comfort worshiper is that they will never have truly deep or meaningful relationships because it takes work to go deep. It takes work to be vulnerable. You have to be willing to be uncomfortable to get deep in a relationship, whether it's a friendship or romantic relationship. And so because of that, the comfort worshiper will never be willing to put in the work, never be willing to get uncomfortable. And so they will never have deep and meaningful relationships. Next is the approval idolatry. The approval worshiper says, life only has meaning and I only have worth if I'm loved and respected by blank. And so you can fill in the blank. This is, you can see how this can pop up into a thousand different surface idols. And this person, they want approval. They want love. They want affirmation and validation, most often through the close relationships in their life. And they're willing to get, or they want validation so badly that they're willing to pay the price of independence. And so they're willing to be dependent on another person in order to get what they think will satisfy them, which is approval. And often, if you are an approval worshiper, the people in your life feel smothered by you. Why? Because you're asking them to be something that is not humanly possible for you. You're asking them to be uh, the sole reason for your happiness, the sole reason for your worth. And so people often feel smothered by the approval worshiper. And the greatest nightmare of the approval worshiper is rejection. Right? So the idea of not being accepted, of not being affirmed, of not being validated is terrifying to them. And this always leads to cowardice. Right? Like the, the approval worshiper ends up a coward because they never have a real opinion. They're never willing to take a stand. This is the guy at work who goes over to one group. is like, yeah, I love Johnny. Johnny's the best. And then goes over to another group. like, man, I hate Johnny. He's the worst. Because they will never take a firm stand on anything because they're too afraid to not get someone's approval. And they go to bed at night knowing that they don't have a spine. It's 
often so sad about the approval worshiper is that they're very insecure in their relationship with God. It's not enough that God approves of them. It's not enough that God loves them. He shines his face on them. They need the approval of other people so far to the point where they would be willing to sacrifice their own biblical morals, their own biblical convictions to get that approval. Third, we have control idolatry. The control worshiper says, life only has meaning and I only have worth if I'm able to get mastery in my life over the area of blank. This person wants control, this certainty, standards of living, self-discipline. And this is a great example of how this is a good thing turned into an ultimate thing that gets super destructive. Right? Like there is nothing wrong with wanting a little self-discipline. There's nothing wrong with wanting some certainty with having standards for your life. That's actually a good thing. But when you make it a God thing, it gets destructive. See, the control worshiper is often willing to pay the price of spontaneity and loneliness. See, spontaneity because they'll never want to do anything unknown. They'll never want to do something in the moment, right? Because they're too afraid of losing control, so they'll never do anything spontaneous. And that leads to the logical end of loneliness, Because you'll get so um, consumed with control that you will push everyone away from you. You will push everything that you can't control out of your life to the point where the only thing in your life is yourself. Why? Because you can control that. And so you will pay the price of loneliness in your quest for control. The greatest nightmare of the control worshiper is uncertainty. And they're, they're always worried. They're running into the problem of worry because... They're uncertain and they're so worried about their plans not going the way they want them to. They're so uh, terrified by the idea of losing control. Uh, People in the life of the control worshiper often feel condemned by them because you hear them saying things like, why can't you just... They're always trying to control, always trying to correct the people around them. If they had a catchphrase or a mantra, it would be something like, if I want it done right, I got to do it myself the control worshiper. And lastly is power idolatry. Our fourth surface idol is power idolatry. The power worshiper says life only has meaning and I only have worth if I have power and influence over others. So this person wants power. They want influence. They want success. They want a little bit of control, but in a different way. They're willing often to pay the price of being burdened. Like this person always wants to take that responsibility, always wants to step up and do that thing, and they're willing to be burdened. Like this is that person who's like, all right, like who's going to bring bagels to the work event tomorrow? And it's like, I'll do it, I'll do it, even though I'm like 25 minutes away from the bagel store in the opposite direction, and I'm going to have to wake up a half hour earlier to feed my cat and give her her medicine. I'm going to have to drop my kid off at my mom's house in order to get it done. And it's like this idea that like being burdened Taking the responsibility implies that image of having power and influence over other people. They're always chomping at the bit to get that. This person is often consumed with winning. And they're not actually consumed with winning. They're consumed with not losing. Right? Like the greatest nightmare for them is humiliation. And so uh, the idea of losing is so terrifying to them. That, that they often become a competitive maniac. They, they are consumed with not losing. The people in their life often feel used by them because people don't actually matter. They're just a means to an end to get more power and more influence. Uh, and because of all this, the power worshiper almost always, almost always runs into the problem of anger. 
Like it always bubbles up into anger. And, and a thirst for influence and, and kind of lust for power, uh, a fire left unattended, burns people. It, it, it bubbles up into anger. You can most visibly see it during a game of friendly competition. You ever play a game of cornhole one minute and people are throwing hands the next minute? You're like, how is this? What is going on? What, it's like regulation rules for a game of cornhole in the backyard. Because this person is so consumed with not losing that they can't ever actually have a fun, friendly game of competition because losing that would be terrifying to them. And it almost always bubbles up, like I said, into anger. This is like the guy who wins and still is angry afterward. You know that guy who like wins the game and he walks off. Why are you angry? You just won. And so those are the four surface idol, uh, source idols that we, we're going to walk through and and I hope that maybe you were able to just grab onto that right away and say, that, that's me. I see that. Or maybe you need to take some time this week and, and trace it. And the cool thing about this is that you can trace this. It's a framework for you to be able to say, okay, what is a sin that I'm struggling with that I can't seem to get under control? So let's take the example of materialism, right? Like, man, I'm just greedy, and you're like, man, I, I just want money. So, okay, so how is that bubbling up? Maybe that's a materialism idol, okay? And, and what's the source underneath that? Is it comfort? Am I doing it because I, I think that comfort is going to satisfy me? Am I doing it because of power? Do I think that the money is going to give me influence over people? Or is it control? Do I think that the money and the, the greed is going to give me control over my life? Right? And you can see how it can really play out to be any or all of them. But, but it takes that work of tracing it back. Or maybe you're like, no, no, no. I see that I have an approval idol. I just don't know how it's playing out in my surface of my life. So you're like, okay, I have an approval idol. How, how am I struggling with an approval idol? Well, you know what? I, I seem to really want the approval of my boss to the point where I'll throw my coworkers under the bus. I'll, I'll backstab my coworkers in order to get my boss's approval. And so you trace from the source out to the surface. And this works both ways. And so maybe this week you would do some self-reflection in that and, and gain some clarity on what's going on. But the thing that I want you to see most visibly is that these idols offer you something. They, they promise you something whether it's comfort or approval or power or control, there's actually something deeper. You could boil it down that every idol offers you the same thing. And it's that sentence that I kind of beat to death already. Life only has meaning and I only have worth if blank. Every single idol is offering you the same thing. Worth, meaning, significance for your life. And, and what I want you to see is, and I was very purposeful in some of my words here, is that they offer you something, but they cost you something. With every idol, you pay a price to get that thing. But Jesus offers you worth. He offers you significance and life at no cost to you. In fact, the cost was bored on him on the cross. See, in our sinfulness, in our waywardness, we deserved hell. We deserved a punishment as a human race. Not one of us has not fallen short of the glory of God. So Jesus, who is God, came down to earth to die on a cross in your place as a payment for your sin, to stand in the place of your punishment and rose again to offer you life, to offer you satisfaction, to offer you significance, knowing that the price was already paid by him and all he wants is your love and your faithfulness and your trust. And see, Jesus is the only God that deserves our worship. 
That's our bottom line today is that Jesus is the only God that deserves our worship. These other idols, they cost too much. And you know what? They don't offer true life. They don't offer significance. They don't offer satisfaction. Only Jesus does. And so what we need to do is we need to get ourselves to this point. We need to get ourselves to the point where we want to worship Jesus. We want to put him back on the throne and dethrone the idols. And we do that by being honest and recognizing our idolatry and our sinfulness. And I know that sounds so counterintuitive, especially in our culture. Our culture tells us to downplay. Our culture tells us, hey, uh, to say things like, man, I I sometimes struggle with this, or like, I I sometimes have this issue, and, and we never are willing to get honest about the things that we struggle with, and this is not helping anyone. And the longer that you do this, you will never truly appreciate Jesus' gift for you, and you will never walk in the fullness of life that he has for you. If you deny your struggles, if you downplay your sinfulness, you will end up just putting perfume on a corpse. It will work for a second, but it will stink in a minute. And I don't want you to just take my word for it. I want you to look at the words of Jesus in Luke 7. See, in Luke 7, Jesus is in the home of Simon the Pharisee. And he's sitting there, and a woman comes in, and she begins to wash Jesus' feet with her tears and with her hair and with a bottle of perfume. And Simon thinks to himself, I'm going to read from verse 39, when the Pharisee who invited him saw this, he said to himself, this man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what kind of woman this is who's touching him. She's a sinner. And then Jesus uses his cool mind-reading powers to read uh, Simon's mind. And then he answers him and he says, a creditor had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other owed 50. Since they could not pay it back, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? Simon answered, I suppose the one who he forgave more. You've judged correctly, he told him. Turning to the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house, you gave me no water for my feet, but she with her tears has washed my feet and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she hasn't stopped kissing my feet since I came in. You did not anoint my head with olive oil, but she has anointed my feet with perfume. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. That's why she loved so much. But the one who was forgiven a little loves a little. See, the one who has been forgiven a lot will love the forgiver a lot. And the point is not that some of you have sinned less and some of you have sinned more and so like, you need to weigh it out. No, I'm saying that we all have been forgiven of a lot, that we all have been forgiven of this massive debt. But when you downplay the debt that you owed, you will never love the forgiver as much as you should. When you walk through life with this mentality that, man, I'm mostly good. I got myself 90% of the way there. I just needed Jesus for the extra 10. You will never truly appreciate Jesus' gift for you. But when you know, man, I was in the negative and God brought me back and then some. That's when you love the forgiver all the more. Paul does this in his letters like all the time. In Colossians 1, like you see him say, once you were alienated and hostile in your minds as expressed in your evil actions. Like, geez, man, a little harsh, don't you think? But now he has reconciled you by his physical body through his death to present you holy, faultless, and blameless before him. Like he reminds his readers who they were, not to bring them down, not to, to get their identity all messed up, but to say, remember how much God forgave you of. You will love him all the more. And so I think practically how we do this is we get honest. So we get honest with God and we get honest with others. 
Uh, honesty with God is, is really about repentance. And, and I think we get repentance mixed up a lot because we think that repentance is just saying, I'm sorry. And repentance is, is literally a physical act of turning away from your sin and turning toward the face of Jesus. So you say, God, this is who I was. This is what I am struggling with, but it is not who I am. And so I will turn away from my sinfulness and I will turn toward you. And then we get honest with other people. And I think that's one of the ways that we can really practically play out repentance in our lives is when we say, uh, hey, someone I trust, um, this is what I'm struggling with. This is what I got going on. This is some of the stuff that I really need help in. Will you uh, reach out to me and check up on me? Will you keep me accountable for it? Maybe you even need to seek counseling and, and professional help to work through some of the stuff in your past that has led you to that place. I don't know specifically what it is for you, but I think what it probably is for all of us is to get honest with God in repentance and to get honest with others in accountability. And when you acknowledge who you were, it will make who you are in Jesus all the more sweet. And so if you're not a follower of Jesus here today, um, I hope that you saw that there are idols in your life. And, and I hope, and I want you to hear me when I say this, this was not to discourage you. This was not to make you feel like you're a horrible person. It is to show you that while you're looking for things like satisfaction and life and hope and significance in your idols, you can turn to Jesus and find those things at no cost to you. And so if you want to start a relationship with Jesus today, I'm going to give you an opportunity to do that in just a second as we pray. But this week, let's do the work of identifying the idols in our life, of tracing through that framework. Let's uh, get honest with God in repentance. Let's get honest with others in accountability. Will you guys pray with me? Jesus, thank you for who you are. God, that when we were at our worst, you were at your best that when we deserved hell for our sin, you died in our place to give us life, to welcome us into the family of God, to call us sons and daughters, to call us redeemed, to call us forgiven. I pray, God, that we recognize who we once were to appreciate who we are in you, God. Would you teach us today? Would you call to mind the, the surface idols and the source idols that we might be struggling with so that we can uproot them at the source so that we can put you back on the throne, God? And if you want to put your trust in Jesus today, you can pray this with me. Jesus, I believe that you died for my sins as a payment for my sins. And I believe that you rose again to give me new life. Would you come into my life today? Would you heal my heart? Would you forgive my sins? Would you teach me to walk with you all the days of my life? And if you prayed that, I just encourage you, uh, would you reach out to us? Uh, you can do that a ton of different ways. Would you just reach out to us one of those ways? We would love to come alongside you and answer your questions and walk with you. And even if maybe you didn't pray that, but you have questions today and you have doubts and you are wondering some things, man, would you just also reach out to us and let us know so we can walk alongside you? Jesus, thank you. I pray that you would be changing hearts this week, that you would be enthroned on the hearts of your people. You can have it all. We love you. In your name, amen.